Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, hey, where you been? Buckeye talk is about to begin. Hey, 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 come on in. Welcome back to your Wednesday Buckeye Talk. Doug Lamarie, Statham Baird, Stephen Means, Rapid Fire. We know we're getting these podcasts to you in the afternoon. It's like we're, we're kind of like, I was excited to give you the two-hour pod Tuesday afternoon. Because actually, it's like, oh, we would have to save it till Wednesday morning. But we don't want to wait and save it. So we're on a little bit of an afternoon schedule. But we're gonna, we'll try to get back in a morning schedule once we get through spring practice. But for now, um, this is how we're doing it. We have some great questions from our tech subscribers. We're going to start with football. And then we'll get to basketball. And then we have a couple nonsense at the end. Because I know some people, you know, I like this. They don't like that. That'll be the order. It looks like we have like four football questions, two NIL questions, two basketball, three basketball questions, and then three nonsense questions. Let's start, guys, with Jim Knowles. And I, I try to very cognizantly be on alert for this. So I'll be curious what you guys think here. From the 513. It seems like everyone on the beat has been charmed by Jim Knowles. I'm not saying that's right or wrong, but do you guys have that same feeling? Is he especially charismatic or chatty with the media? There have been times in my long career as an old man covering sports where I do feel like the media has been dazzled by, you know, the whole win the news conference kind of hire guys. Right. And it's like, okay, I get it. But whether or not you're nice to the media, like doesn't matter at all, frankly. It might get a couple better stories to the fans. Maybe it's not that it doesn't matter at all, but it's not the main goal. Dazzling and charming the media. There, when Greg Williams got hired by the Cleveland Browns, Greg Williams, like, like the like bounty gate Greg Williams, and like he came in and was like, oh, we're going to do it like this. And people were like, oh, my gosh, would you want to run through a wall for that guy? And it's like, it's the bounty gate guy. What are we... No, what? Let's not, you know. So there's sometimes I'm like, ah, let's not get hornswoggled here. Nathan, are we being hornswoggled by Jim Knowles? And this, it's not about Jim Knowles. It's about us. And there's nothing that I like talking about more than the media. Are we being I duped? Think, are we duped? I, do say I, I like think, <laughs> I think charmed is an interesting word to use because I, I, it's not the word I would use. I think what's going on right now is. 
Well, actually, to answer the person's second question, he's not especially charismatic or chatty with the media, I don't think. He doesn't go up there. He's not the one that's – of the two coordinators that were up there yesterday, he's not the one dropping, like, folksy terms like hottest chicken grease and stuff like that. Like, that is not Jim Knowles. And I'm not saying Kevin Wilson's up there trying to put on a show for us. That Maybe that's just genuinely his personality. But Jim Knowles' personality genuinely is a little drier. And even when he's humorous, it's drier. But really, I think the thing that happened yesterday was he stood up there for 35 minutes and told us 35 minutes of pure football things. And we're trying to we don't know. We haven't been in his mind very much yet. So to get 35 minutes of all over the field, what is your thought about what when, when I say the name JT to him right now? What do you think? What do you think about Teron Vincent? Who's playing that Jack position and why do you call it the Jack? And what's the difference between the Jack and the Leo? Like we learned so much in those 35 minutes. I think if it, the, the sort of palpable excitement that was coming off of there yesterday was not necessarily, I mean, yes, it's for Jim Knowles, but it's because he's the vessel into Intel about the team. And we were getting just yesterday was like the most Intel we've had about Ohio state football since the Rose bowl. Like since we actually got to watch them play their last football game, I would argue. So I think that's what yesterday was. It was, you know, we want that um, access or we want that experience of talking to him because then we get to come back here and talk smarter about Ohio State football to all of you who are listening. So it's really more, I don't think we're charmed yet because I think, you know, when Kerry Kerry Combs was a very charming guy and I think people probably reacted a little bit the same way when he first came in, but that didn't stop him from being criticized when things went the wrong way as far as the defense. So I would say people are refreshed right now to be getting information from Jim Knowles. I don't know if we're charmed because I think, again, now it's it, this is all about information about how they're setting things up. That is a separate conversation than how it gets executed and whether it works once it's on the field this fall. Yeah, I think he's just answering questions, honestly. And there are moments where it's like, oh, this is really cool. Like the second time we talked to him where he got up and was literally demonstrating the way that he teaches tackling or certain things. That stuff is cool, but I don't think he's trying to do anything. I think he's just answering our questions. For instance, let me throw a for instance. One of the more folksy things, Jim Knowles keeps talking about smoking cigars. I'm kind of done hearing about Jim Knowles' cigars already. We're like two interviews in. I'm done. They're disgusting. <laughs> That's because you don't like cigars. cigars. I feel like he bring he might bring up cigars, right? But he might bring up cigars a lot in his normal life as well. It doesn't seem like he was saying it because hey, I want to be known as a cigar guy. I think he's just he likes cigars, and so he tells people he likes cigars. I just saying, I think there are people who are responding to him like, "Oh, isn't that fun? He's a cigar smoker," oh, and I'm yeah. more of the point of like, eh, I don't want to, I don't want to be doing the story about. Uh, Jim Knowles had to retire because of his cigar smoking, the results of that. You think cigar smoking is repugnant? Is that the word you used? I think all smoking is pretty repugnant. I do. I don't know. I do distinguish between cigarette smoking and cigar smoking. I don't know if that's right or not. Like a victory cigar. Hey, I'm a victory cigar. You're, you're out on the thing. I don't, I don't know. Victory poison. I have a soft spot maybe for like pipe smoking. 
But what's the difference um, between pipe smoking and because of the aroma smoking. of it? Because of the aroma of it. I remember playing um, high school football, and a friend of mine was on the team, and his dad smoked a pipe. And you could be standing down on the sidelines, and he's the only guy in the place, small place, small school, smoking a pipe up in the stands, and you could smell it down on the field. And it just has a different aroma than to me. I've gone to uh, like cigar bars in Indianapolis and other places, and you come out of there smell. You, you feel like an ashtray. You feel like a walking ashtray. So the pipe smoke, that's it's poison that smells good, while the cigar smoke is poison Correct. that doesn't smell good. Correct. But it's still poison yeah. at the end of the day. While cigarette poison is just like, I mean, it's 2022, dude. I don't know how many more ways we could tell you that you get cancer or kill yourself smoking these things. So that's just a personal. You wanted that's we just you yeah. being rebellious. I'm not trying to make this a public service announcement. And I'm well, not we are, to, though. We definitely yeah, we, we are. are at this we point. Yeah. Did it for 40 seconds. <laughs> yeah. So. Anybody who dares to still smoke is just like just turned off the podcast. So yeah. anyway, sorry about that. Uh, when I was in college in my dorm freshman year, everybody would wait to do like your homework. And so on Sunday night, everybody be like trying to get their stuff ready for Monday. And someone started Sunday night smoke out. So everybody would like take a break like at nine o'clock and go out in front of the dorm and have a cigarette. And I'd never smoked. I didn't smoke. But I was like, oh, I'm a college. I'll do it. By, I'll give it to peer pressure. So I would go do a Sunday night smoke out. I probably smoked 34 cigarettes in my entire life, right? And I would smoke half a cigarette and I would be so dizzy. It was like, it, it, you could have, I don't know. It's like you, you could have dumped a, a bag of hard drugs on me. And I don't think I could have been more out of it than smoking like nine puffs of a cigarette. So I'd smoke half a cigarette and then I'd go in the lobby of the dorm and lie on the couch for half an hour and the world would be spinning. And and that was little Dougie's exposure to the world. You know, I actually think it's the opposite. I think if you get dizzy from smoking half a cigarette, then if someone were to take a sealed bag of marijuana and wave it within like six feet of you, you would just drop dead. Yeah, no, I mean, if that would ever happen, I'm assuming I would drop dead. So I don't, think I do when Urban Meyer came in at Ohio State and after a decade of Jim Tressel very purposefully talking in a circle at every news conference to sort of avoid answering questions and again we always joked I can remember you got to a point with Jim Tressel and this is not about them as the football coach this is about how the media reacts to people in news conferences my good friend Rusty Miller a longtime AP writer one time used like an adjective with three syllables in it and asking Jim Tressel a question. I can't remember what it was, but Jim Tressel gave like a two minute answer on, well, I don't know if it's nefarious. I mean, I, I mean, that's not nefarious because actually, but like, it was just like, it was a long word and it was like, oh, we can't use long words in questions to Jim Tressel because he'll use the presence of the long word as an excuse for not talking about football. So then urban, and then Luke, Luke Fickle was put in an impossible situation, but I think Luke was like, I just don't want to say something that's going to get me in trouble, right? He didn't even get to hire his own staff. The thing's a mess. And then Urban Meyer got here, and Urban Meyer is more certain of himself than anybody that you'll ever come across, which is part of why he's so successful. So he didn't care. So he'd come in and say anything. And we were like, oh my gosh, this is information. He's talking about anything you ask, he will talk about. And were we charmed by that? I don't know. It's like we were we were people in the desert, Nathan, just dying for information. So at the moment, Jim Knowles, it's not that he's, you know, Mr. Personality. 
but he's providing information and we're, uh, we're, we're scooping it up. We can't get it in fast enough. And so I do think that is something, right? But actually the charming is like Carrie Combs, as you mentioned, Carrie Combs is about as charming as it gets. And I think I will probably admit that the fact that I liked Carrie Combs so much as a person may have made me a little late to the party on like, I don't know if he's the best defensive coordinator for Ohio State. Right. And I'm just trying to be honest here. That's not my intent, but he's a great freaking dude who was not very good at the job he was hired for after previously being very good at the job. So I do think, Nathan, we try to be on alert for that. But as you've said, it's not I don't think it's exactly really what's happening here at Knowles. There's there's an author named Annie Pruel. Um, she wrote Brokeback Mountain. She wrote a bunch of other, like so known for writing like Westernish things. Sometimes she has a short story called People in Hell Only Want a Drink of Water. And I sometimes think of like this time of year, those press conferences, that's what it reminds me of. Like we are just, we are in drought conditions. We need information. We get these very quick bursts at practice. We try to find things out behind the scenes, but that has to be filtered the correct way because one person sees one thing. Here's one thing. What is what really happened? And you can only take what these guys say at face value, I suppose. But it's, it was just very yesterday. We just got done. And I think you said, didn't you say something like, I need a cigarette? Like, I did, ironically. actually. I, I stood up in the news conference. Coincidentally. Said, I need a Meanwhile, like Kevin Wilson was off to the side drinking his drinking his tea as if, yep, I just served you guys a lot of information. Yeah. It was Fast right after kidding. that answer about. I'll talk to my tight ends. Yeah, it was right after that answer about Donovan Jackson and why he's playing left guard. And that was like the just the, the cherry on top of the Sunday or whatever. But like, it's, it, this is the time where like, <laughs> we just want to know, especially under these circumstances. New defensive coordinator, three other new assistant coaches, so many changes going on, and we're just that thirsty for we're we're just people in hell who desperately need a drink of water, and that water is information. Yeah, I don't know. I just think he's answering questions. <laughs> like the water is information. Uh, by the way, Wednesday College Football Survivor Show, we did our combo rankings nationally after we had done it in the Big Ten. And I will say Ohio State was definitely not the first Big Ten team off the board in that draft. It's a free podcast if you guys want to go listen to that. I thought it was a good – it sort of helped um, place Ohio State in some context. So Shahan and I went through the top ten programs that we thought. So you guys can go catch that in Survivor Show. Second question about Jim Knowles from the 734. Jim Knowles was supposed to bring a new look to the defense and fix all the defensive problems, but is that too much pressure to put on him? What happens if he doesn't fix the problems immediately? Do we have too high of expectations for the defense from the 2019 season? Steven, does it feel like we're putting too much pressure on Jim Knowles? No, this is Ohio State. They're trying to win national championships. And also, no one is expecting them to have the best defense in the country. We've said at length, I mean, a top 30 defense and this team can win a national championship because of how potent this offense is. So, no, it's not... It's Ohio State. He said it himself. I, I understand where I'm at and what the task is. And you're not, he's not, not at Oklahoma State where he's going to get four years to fix this thing. No, it's not too much pressure. This is what he signed up for by coming here. Yeah. When he signed his contract with, with those contract terms, he knew what expectations he was attaching himself to. That's just part of this job. And I don't think that the. I don't think the expectations are too high as we look at this defense. I think we're. Um, Optimistic, I hate, is not the right word I want to use because, again, optimism, 
we don't have some emotional attachment to this. We think that there are elements here that will lead to Ohio State being better on defense in 2022 than they were last season. Uh, but I don't think necessarily that we're predicting some absolute surge to the top of college football. I, I think also, you know, is it too much pressure to put on him? No. What happens if he doesn't fix the problems immediately? And a semantic thing. I mean, if they improve this year, I don't, again, I don't think they have to be a top 10 defense this year for him to have come in and done his job. They're still, you know, 2019 is the outlier, but that doesn't mean 2020 and 2021 are acceptable. The guy in the end who had too much pressure on him was Kerry Combs because Kerry Combs came in. He had never been a defensive coordinator before. He was taking over a defense that was losing Chase Young and Jeff Okuda. And COVID happened. And in his first year, like they got a hole blown in spring football. And then it was like, oh, come in and do that. Jim Knowles actually is extremely qualified for this job. He's been a defensive coordinator for a pretty long time. He just had a very successful run at Oklahoma State, which is a good program, but doesn't have as much talent as Ohio State. I think in a lot of ways, like Jim Knowles is everything's in line for Jim Knowles, which maybe sounds like, oh, so he better succeed. And then you can say that's pressure. But Stephen, you know what I mean? Like there's just a lot of the Jim Knowles stuff makes sense. And as we said, we're not saying, well, if you're not George's defense this year, you're in trouble. Carrie, as it turned out, I mean, there was a lot of things. There was sort of an expectation level and a lot of things that maybe could trip him up. That mm -hmm. Most of those things aren't in place for Jim Knowles. His first season was COVID and he doesn't have to two of the top three picks in the NFL draft. And then his next year, they've got a really young defense where they have absolutely no idea who's good or not because they're all freshmen and sophomores or upperclassmen who never reached their potential. While Jim Knowles is getting the normal spring, he's, as you mentioned, he's been a coordinator for years and he's actually been a head coach before. And also they lost, what, like three valuable pieces from last year's defense? I mean, this is, it's almost as if Jim Knowles, his experience had him more prepared to do what, Kerry Combs' job was while Kerry Combs probably needed this. Yeah. And Kerry Combs inherited that talent dip, like yeah. in the urban Ryan Day crossover. There's mm -hmm. four things that worked against Kerry Combs, who had never done it before and was being asked to do this, Nathan, at the first time at Ohio State at a program with national championship aspiration. So I just think Jim Knowles. And I, I'm not so sure. I think didn't Nathan, didn't Jim Knowles get asked a version of this? And I think Jim Knowles was sort of like, oh man, I'm it's just football. I he definitely had an answer on Tuesday that was something about the uh, something about like it's just football. That someone phrased maybe it wasn't a pressure question, but it was like a oh, Ohio State, Ohio State, Ohio State. And his answer was it's just football, man. And I was like, oh no, he's good. Yeah. I there was some kind of question and maybe just about like his transition and like getting started, whatever. I, I can't remember exactly what it was. I think the thing to keep in mind, it, it is a really interesting contrast because Kerry Combs, when he's hired, you start to pick apart little pieces of his background and why that might make him a good defensive coordinator. He's been a great recruiter. He's been a great teacher at the position. So maybe that means he can then teach a defense to an entire defense. He has this presence that should have the respect of the other position coaches. You could, you know, all those things make sense. He's, he's a just Buckeye. Coming, he's, he's an just Ohio coming guy. back from the NFL where he got all, back all these the NFL, new right. ideas. Right. 
so you had a bunch of of you had it you had a bunch of things that under themselves are like really great unopened little jars of paint that doesn't mean you can then he can then take them and make the picture you need whereas with Jim Knowles you have experience of it's not he's coming in as the Jim Knowles system he's not just the individual he's the plan it's been executed it's been proven to work at multiple places now different circumstances each time different leagues different regions of the country so it's it's almost it's just a night and day comparison and it's one of the reasons again why i think that the expectations aren't too high for jim knowles because he isn't being hired as like a let's see if this works you know what i mean like he's not he wasn't applying for a job it's not as if it was someone um applying for a job that's a step up in their um, career. I mean, it is in terms of the stature of the programs, but it's just the job he's had. He's been doing it here. He's been doing it here. He's been doing it here. Like uh, the, he's he he has been building towards this moment in a different way than Kerry Combs was. He's been hired to fix the defense. Gene Smith has said it. Ryan Day has said it. He, they, they literally hired him to fix the defense. But then also with all the stuff that Kerry Combs had going against him, they reached the national championship in year one. So. I mean, no, but Kerry Combs got fired. I mean, it's not an right, Ohio State just, question. It's a no, Jim Knowles I know. Question. I'm just saying that, yeah. like, uh, what I'm saying is, with all that going against Kerry Combs, he still reached the national championship after everything we just reached, we just pointed out. So that's the with all that should be the expectation with Jim Knowles here, because he doesn't have a lot of that stuff going against him. So why shouldn't they reach the national championship game? It is a little, you know, it, yeah. I mean, it is crazy when you think about it. And I'm not defending Kerry Combs as the defensive coordinator. He oh. wasn't good. He wasn't good enough in the end. We all came to that conclusion but it's a lot it's a lot like cardale jones Kerry combs's path is a lot like cardale jones it's like cardale jones helped ohio state win the national championship won the quarterback job and then like had four bad series against northern illinois and they're like eh maybe it's not you and they were like he's like what Kerry combs you're what they make the national championship game mm -hmm. two games in the next year they're like nope not you it's like what are you talking about we made but at the same time it also made sense so anyway uh, interesting, like interesting discussion, but I think in the end we believe that it's not really that much pressure on Jim Knowles. This is a great question because Kevin Wilson talked about this Nathan on Tuesday from the eight one three. Everyone seems hyped for the wide receiver group, especially after the showing against Utah. However, should that be taken with a grain of salt, given that Utah was playing with an extremely depleted secondary and a running back at cornerback? Seems like some of the fan base is confusing Utah's defense, Georgia's. Kevin Wilson on Tuesday, Nathan said, Yeah, I thought maybe we we're going to have to play a slugfest. And then we started the game, and I was like, Oh, their number two corners are running back. I guess we'll just chuck it. Should we adjust our receiver expectations based on this fact? You know, if Jackson Smith and Jigba had not been on the trajectory he was on before the Rose Bowl, or if Marvin Harrison Jr. was like a three-star prospect who came out of nowhere and did that, I think, you know, maybe that would give you more pause. That, But this really seemed like a, a opportunity where really, really talented guys who we already knew were talented just showcased it. I mean... I said it on the done? Friday part. Uh, yeah, I didn't know if you were done or not yet. Um, I, I don't know what else to say about that. I mean, it's a, it's oh. it's. I know Utah had obviously some some limitations that day, but 
I really thought that really just seemed as much about what Jackson Smith and Jigba and Marvin Harrison Jr. and and you know Mecca Buka had some big catches. Like it seemed like more what those guys are than what Utah didn't have to me as I'm, I was watching it. I mean, I said it on Friday that like maybe we should calm down a little bit, but still, uh, I'm pretty sure two of the three catch touchdown catches Marvin Harrison Jr. had were on Clark Phillips, who's probably who's like on first round trajectory. So that means something that's one-on-one man-to-man coverage and Marvin Harrison just beat him off the line of scrimmage with a good release. I'll pay attention to that. But then also, I mean, Jackson Smith and Jigba had been basically doing it since week two that I'm going to catch a lot of balls and rack up a lot of yards. So that is what it is. And we saw enough flashes, even if it was garbage time from some of the younger guys to believe that they're going to be okay. I'll still stay in the corner of Ohio state's going to have at least two guys this year who are thousand yard receivers. The idea that it's not Georgia's defense is true, but I'm not sure anybody in the country is going to have Georgia's defense this year. Um, I think Clemson has a chance to be great on defense, but a lot of that's based up, I think on their guys up front. I don't know right now. I can't, I can't run through the best secondaries. We thought Penn state had a really good secondary last year. They're losing a lot of those guys. They got Joey Porter jr. Back and some other guys. Notre Dame, obviously Kyle Hamilton's the best safety in the country. He's gone. I don't know a ton about Notre Dame secondary right now, but part of it is, well, yeah, Utah had some holes, but as you said, Steve, they also had Clark Phillips. I'm not sure there's a Clark Phillips in the big 10 right now. I, I'm, I'm, I apologize if I'm wrong, right. But maybe when they get, if Ohio state makes the playoff and gets to a semifinal or a championship game against a really good defense, then it'll be like, okay, but Nathan, for the other 13 games, I think Iowa has a decent secondary, right? I don't know. I just, I'm not, if the point is Utah's secondary was average or below average in a lot of ways, it's like, yeah, just like a lot, a lot of the secondaries that they are going to face during this regular season. The other thing is, let's say they just had, everyone just had like a normal game in the Rose Bowl. Ohio State wins that game. 27 to 24 something like that um with the way again the trajectory jackson smith the jigba was on in the second half of last season and the pictures that are coming out of practice of the jumping that marvin harrison jr is doing and the perceived ceiling that julian fleming is still reaching for and Emeka buka and what he could become in the short term I, I just feel like there would still be a lot of hype right now for this receiver room i think people would still be talking about big expectations and and on top of that cj's won't throw him the ball and also brian hardline hasn't missed yet so like there's like some benefit of the doubt built in that he can keep developing guys i get it though we also did a podcast i made us do a podcast on friday of will jackson smith and jigba have the greatest receiving season in college football history and then probably somebody's gonna ask maybe chill out slightly i get it Jared in Springboro from the 937. What are your thoughts on Tanner McAllister being Jordan Fuller-esque for this team? Doug has been skeptical of Tanner's lack of accolades and mediocre draft grade, but Fuller didn't have many accolades and obviously didn't have a great draft grade either. With his knowledge of the system, I could see him playing a huge role where his stats don't jump off the page, but he is absolutely a backbone of the defense type of guy. Do you have Steven Tanner McAllister down as a possible backbone of the defense type of guy? No, I think as when we had the argument a month ago, I think his ceiling is he has a similar impact in the secondary that Jonah Jackson had on the offensive line as a plug and play guy who's just quality. 
and his floor is he gets them through the first half of the season until either Cameron Martinez or legend Cavazos, who's now working in there is ready to go. And he starts that he's a starter at the beginning of the season. And maybe he's not the starter by the end of the season, but both things are on the table. I, I almost, I almost wonder if people are going to hate this. I almost wonder if like tough Borland is a better analogy because I could see a situation. You are right. People are going to hate that. Yeah. And I could, but I could see a situation where he early in the season is the reliable one, especially because of his knowledge of, of Jim Knowles' defense and the leg up that that gives him. And by the end of the season, does someone like Cameron Martinez, a la Baron Browning in 2019, start to force their way into more of those snaps and more of the most critical snaps? I, I, I could see that. Um, I don't know if I call him the same thing as Jordan Fuller. Fuller, you would have a better appreciation of this. Doug. Like how bad was Fuller in 2018? The whole defense was pretty bad. Yeah, he was probably um, the least responsible okay. for a bad secondary, but nobody had banana angle on the field, man. Yeah. Banana angle is a little tough. So he had the fewest banana angles in the secondary. Um, but he probably got covered up by the numerous banana angles by other guys. He it looked worse than it did maybe sometimes because he was having to fix significant problems in front of him yeah. as a safety. Yeah. And then in 2019, they put him in a situation where he was even more responsible for fixing those problems as the single high safety in some ways. And he kind of flourished. So I, I suppose I could, I know where this texture is coming from. The positions will be so different because he won't be playing at the back of the defense. He'll be playing up in the box, but I see what they're, where they're coming from that maybe as a, a guy who's just been solid, 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 solid. Could you make a transition to something else? I think it would all maybe, but it, it's going to be in a, just a, a completely different circumstance because he's going to be playing in a different way. I think, the NFL and us probably underrated Jordan Fuller's athleticism because he was a sixth round pick and, and he was a starter for a team that won the Super Bowl. I know he was hurt by the end of the year, but like he's like a starting NFL player for a good he's, team. He's a and I do think I thought Jordan Fuller was like a classic do your job guy. I also think that'd be a good podcast. I think who are our top 10 do your job guys on this team, which is what that means. Well, you guys know what I mean when I say you're a do your job guy. And would, is Tanner McAllister, Stephen, going to be a do your job guy who's just like he's reliable and you can count on him? Uh, if that's the comparison we make it with Jordan Fuller, like, uh, yeah, maybe, maybe because he seems like he's done his job for Jim Knowles for a couple years previous. And yeah, I think that's in reality what he might end up being. And now the question is, is that okay for the position he plays? And I think it might be as the nickel corner. I think it might be okay to, that you don't necessarily are, are skyrocketing superstar level, or you're not like an a plus or a B plus player. I think you're allowed to be an average player at nickel safety. Cause I don't off the top of my head right now. I don't know who the Rondell Moore is of the big 10. Who's going to ruin Ohio state season. You, you know, cause frankly, that's kind of who they played at that spot last year for a chunk of the season in Marcus yeah. Williamson, who was kind of a do your job, do your job guy. Like Cam Martinez flashed for a little bit and maybe other mm -hmm. guys, but then Cam Martinez's role got reduced and like Marcus Williamson was 
playing a whole heck of a lot in the second half of the year. And it was like, why is he playing so much? And it's like, I think because he did his job. Mm-hmm. And if Tanner McAllister is maybe if Tanner McAllister is Marcus Williamson plus Nathan, right? That's, you know, they now last year, they kind of weren't quite good enough, but there were times when Marcus Williamson really helped this team. And maybe Tanner McAllister's like that with even a little more ability. It's you look back on 2019 and kind of the embarrassment of riches they had. And like, if they had, you didn't need someone as good as Sean Wade at slot corner that year for that defense to still be really good. And they desperately needed someone as good as Sean Wade at slot corner the last two years, because they were weaker at all these other positions. So they, if, if the rest of this defense comes together and, and makes a step, then I think Tanner McAllister will be a fine fit at that nickel spot. All right, quick break. We'll come back next. NIL and hoops on Buckeye Talk. Back on Buckeye Talk, question number five. Nathan, we'll head this to you because I think this this has an actual answer. From the 513, will there ever be a time you can donate to an NIL fund of your favorite school like you can donate to charity now? Yes, that's what these collectives are. That's what the foundation... That's like the whole yeah. point. So that's right? what, if you've seen, I reported on other people around the beat have reported on the V Foundation that Brian Schottenstein and Cardell Jones are the direct founders and directors of. And they're putting together the board right now. Urban Meyer serving on it, a bunch of other like local business. JT people. Barrett. JT Barrett's on it. Some other people with Ohio State ties. That's what this is. You donate there and then that money gets dispersed to the athletes in exchange for them doing and this is still a little bit, some of the details of this have not been like fully explained. And I think they're, they've been waiting to get closer to the spring game, which is their launch to divulge some of this. That's the impression I've been getting. They've been kind of pushing back and saying, well, we'll get those answers to you eventually. But so I don't know the complete mechanism for how this works, but basically the board is set up to determine what athletes need to do in order to get these payouts that are being collected that's why they're called a collective this collect these collected donations from boosters from fans from whatever and this has been something that's been Ohio State's a little bit behind on having their first one get going other schools other athletic programs or the more more importantly the fans around the athletic programs had already figured this out and were a little bit ahead of it that's what you saw a little bit of down at Texas A&M and, and some of the other places in the south have um, the, the boosters were just a little bit more organized right off the jump to do something separate from the athletic department. This isn't really in conjunction with the athletic department. Ohio state is changing its policies towards some things where there now will be some more interaction between its employees and the people doing NIL making, you know, doing NIL endeavors, trying to get NIL funds to athletes. But in the beginning, they were taking more of a hands-off approach just I think, to kind of, suss out what some where some of the legal boundaries were on this okay this leads us into the next question from the 740 i don't quite understand doug's vocal disdain for all nil discussion i get not wanting to drive to dive into the minutiae of every minor deal but collectives and their eye-raising contracts represent a generational shift this is clearly affecting programs across the nation in one way or another doug what gives kurt in san francisco so the kind of thing that Nathan just explained, if it affects the sports, if it affects who's getting players in recruiting, if it affects 
on court, on field production. And who is? Then, of course, it's interesting, right? Then, then of course. Um, if it's anything other than that, I, I have no interest in it because that's like sports business. That's like, oh, who got this deal? It's like, I don't care. I don't care about sports business. When I, Darren Rovell, everybody knows who Darren Rovell is, right? He's like the preeminent sports business reporter in the nation. He, he didn't invent the beat, but like he kind of did. And he was actually behind me for a few years um, in school at Northwestern. And he had like a sports business radio show at Northwestern. And I can remember him. I was like on his show on the student radio station when I was like a young reporter covering stuff. And he was talking about the sports business stuff. And I was like, who cares about this stuff? Nobody cares. And then he like made a whole career out of it. So he was smarter about it than I was. But my interest level is very limited. And I will say, Nathan, one of the things is I get that the collectives matter, but I don't think we have a handle on it yet. And so a lot of the collective discussion is, well, it might be this and it might be that. And it could be this. And that does not particularly interest me because I'm not enough of an expert on it. You're the one doing the reporting on it. Good. We need people reporting on it. But get back to me when we have an idea of like, what, show me, like, show me. And like Texas A&M, hey, if they spent this many guys and that's why they had the number one recruiting class in the country and they're collected to this. Okay, I get it. I get that. And reporting on Ohio State's collective matters. But man, I'm here for the football and basketball. Like I'm not, I, 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 like that's what matters. I just If it's dollar signs, my interest is limited, man. And I don't think we have a good handle on it yet. But even with the Texas A&M, it's not like Texas A&M went from like putting together recruiting classes that were ranked in the 60s to all of a sudden, oh, we can do an IL deal. So now they have the number one class. They've had top 10 classes the last four years here. So it's just, they probably got, a couple extra guys and what's going to happen. Like uh, if they're not playing and these NIL deals are no longer in place because there's their endorsements and nobody's going to invest money in somebody who's sitting on the bench. So I, I, let, let me uh, show me when a, 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 a program can go from, they're not getting top tier talent to all of a sudden they're getting every five star you can think of just because they're handing out a bunch of money through these NIL collectives. And that's not happening right now. The top 10 five recruiting classes were Texas and Alabama, Georgia, Ohio state, and Texas. I feel like that makes sense whether NIL exists or not. What I think fans, because fans, at least a lot of the ones we hear from definitely seem to view recruiting through a, a sort of zero sum situation, right? Like, did you win that recruiting battle for that player or did you lose it? And I think fans there's, or at least a part of the, of the, of that fan base is concerned is Ohio state not going to be able to get player X in the future because it doesn't have the right kind of collective or isn't organized. And these other schools are though. There was a report from the athletic that came out last or earlier this month where they saw the contract that a player was signing with a power five program where they were guaranteed. And I can't remember. It was a crazy amount of money really. Um, and, but, and they weren't even signed with that school yet, but if you were signing with the collective of that school and you only get the money under certain circumstances. And there, it was, it was an interesting breakdown just from a legal standpoint. They talked to, you know, they, they weren't allowed to name under condition of being able to see the contract. They weren't allowed to name the player of the school, but they then could take it to other agents, other lawyers and say, here's what this contract entails. 
what is does this is this good for athletes what is this going to mean and there was like kind of feedback on both sides of like you know it's 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 good that like individuals at each school that are the coaches ADs whatever but at the same time are players getting taken advantage of and are they giving away too many rights and all this stuff and you're right Doug like a lot of this is still very 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 unsettled and like but like people really care are there people this is not obviously Nathan you know I'm not talking about it's like because you're doing important on this and it's one of those things things can be good or important but not be entertaining yes and things can be entertaining and not particularly good or important I don't know if people have noticed on this podcast, we kind of go for the entertaining. So I get that NIL stuff might be important. I don't care. Like I don't, well, let's take it to a lawyer and find out. I don't, I don't care. Tell me when that kid was going to go to Bama and instead he's going to Idaho state. Yes. He got $8 million. Yes. That's let, my point. Then yes. let's talk. If yes. it's not that, and even if it's, well, you might get $8 million from this school or this school or this school. Oh, so you mean he's going to pick between schools like he always did? He's just going to do it with $8 million in his pocket? Great. But what is the conversation beyond 10 seconds about that? It's now a factor in recruiting. I don't, I don't care. Let's talk about football. That's where I am on that stuff. And, and so it's, you know, but I, I'm – just like I don't care that much whether a guy, an NBA player, an NFL player has a Nike deal or a Reebok deal. I don't really care. I don't care about the other stuff either. I just want to say, I, but there is maybe evidence that some of that is happening with the guy who was it uh, Hunter, the the kid that flipped from Florida oh, State who's now to Jackson, going to Jackson State. State. Yeah, right. And and Deion Sanders says there was no NIL deal in place to help make that happen. There had been reporting that maybe there was. So again, like. It's some of these things I think are worth mentioning. They're worth keeping our eye on, but it's because the, this landscape is being built around us and the the landscape that we're going to live in five years from now is under construction. You know, we're, we're in the NIL era, but it's still a a very shaky foundation of exactly what the realities that everyone's going to operate in are. So I think it'll be, we have to pay attention to it now to explain what's going on five years from now. Yeah, yeah but-, but also, like, Travis Hunter trying to learn from the greatest cornerback of all time at a HBCU school as a black kid, and he's Coach Prime. I mean, whether the NIL stuff was involved or not, all the other cool stuff that's involved with going to play for Deion Sanders still exists, and it's one kid. It's not like Deion Sanders got seven of these kids. By the way, if we want to talk about elite Black players deciding to go play for HBCUs and coaches there. Eddie George has a job now. Deion yeah. Sanders. Like, if we would talk about that, I'll do 50 podcasts on that. That's a potential revolution. I know what you're saying about this being, it's being built around us, Nathan. So you know what I do when I see a building being built? I drive past the building. I say, oh, they're driving, they're building the building there. I don't go in the building and ask how they're keeping the bricks together. I say, oh, you're building a building. Get back to me when it's built. And then tell me nope. if there's a Chili's in it. But aren't you also curious about what that building is going to be? So I ask. I go. There's on usually, it's I say, usually a, well, no. There's usually a fence up that has a poster that says "coming soon." Yeah. 
maybe sometimes yeah so that's it so the, the, the collect is being built they put up a post said urban myers on the board i was like cool i'm good i drove past i saw the poster on the on the fence and get back to me when it's the grand opening in the meantime i'm going to football practice so that's where i that's where i stand on this and and it doesn't matter again it doesn't matter what i think I think I'm speaking for a decent portion of the fans and also the people who are really interested in that. We are reporting on it. We are because we need to, because it's important and it's maybe potentially interesting, but man, I don't want to talk about it much. Basketball time. Those are our football questions. If you're a person who only listens to this podcast for football, we just did two hours on Tuesday. That is the end of the football discussion. Other than a question later on about what's more annoying, like, cornerbacks who signal incomplete when a receiver drops a ball or uh, a receiver catching like a two yard pass and doing a first down sign. That's the only other football question we have list. All right. Basketball question. We had this idea, Nathan, you had said, Hey, should we sort of talk about the fact that the big 10 kind of laid an egg in the NCAA tournament? It's like, Hey, let's do it on a rapid fire. I bet you we'll get one question. We got one, que- we got one question about it. And I was like, Oh God, we're not going to get a question about it from the five, one, three basketball question is the big 10 too slow and outdated in their schemes versus the rest of college basketball underperforming in recent tournaments. Last champion was 2000 feels like football pre urban joining the league. Steven nine teams in, Nobody in the elite eight. Can we take and And there, again, it's kind of a trend when we talk about now, the other thing we have to throw in the caveat, we've run through it here before since the last national championship for the big 10, Illinois left lost in a national title game. Michigan lost a national title game. Indiana lost a national title game. Wisconsin lost in a national title game. Ohio state lost a national title game. They've been very close. It's not like they all get bounced in the round of 32 every year, but Nate, uh, Steven, this was bad. What did it tell us? Did it tell us something? To answer the question, yes. The Big Ten is the only league that's still playing through big men who just like tosses a ball to a big man and says, do something with it. And it's not so much that they're playing through big men. They're playing through big men who are NBA level talents. They play slow basketball where they rely on the reps to call a bunch of fouls. And so it's stoppages all the time. It's not very entertaining to watch. Big 10 basketball is the ugliest thing in the world to me of any sport. It's the ugliest thing. The guard play is average at best. Most of the time, every so often you'll get a wing player who's elite, but then he's gone after a year. <coughs> Malachi Branham. And that's just kind of what it is. There aren't a lot of NBA play- high level NBA players that come to the big 10 every single year. And some of the, and a lot of that is how these coaches choose to build their rosters. A lot of them build their rosters with guys who are going to be around for two, three or four years. They're not doing the, you know, like Izzo could easily do the, I'm just going to go get the one and done things. If he want, if he wanted to, just like Duke does, just like Kentucky does, just like North Carolina is starting to do, but he doesn't do that. He builds his roster with guys who are going to be there three or four years. And so does everybody else. Trigger so does, warning. So does Villanova. So does Villanova. And they've won two national titles and might be about to win a third. I do. Hey. I was going to say, trigger warning, because I'm about to mention Purdue, which I know people get uh, skeezed by sometimes. When I was covering Purdue in the Sweet 16 in Boston, in whatever year that was, I think they were playing. I don't remember. Who, I think they, I can't remember who they were playing in the uh, in that round. But I think the game before that, I think they were actually they were playing Texas Tech. And I think the game before that, I was watching them play West Virginia or West. I was watching West Virginia and Villanova play. And when you watch 
kinds of teams up close, you just you tell that they have something going on, especially in the backcourt that Big Ten teams often don't. I feel like Big Ten teams tend to like these little scrappy bulldogs who will, you know, um, who are gritty and will do whatever. And then Final Four teams have like Velociraptors. Like it's a different kind of athlete. And until Big Ten teams start prioritizing that, I do think that there is a pace of play in the Big Ten and a style of play in the Big Ten, a physical style that rewards teams that play the style that Steven's talking about. And so there's a little bit of a a combination, there's a little bit of a conversation to have that's similar to the Ohio State conversation we've been having in recent years. Not so much now, I think, you know, with, with Knowles coming in, but like, how are you building your team? Are you building your team to win the Big Ten? Or are you winning, are you building your team to win in the playoffs? And are Big Ten basketball teams building teams to win in the playoffs or win in the tournament. So I think that's a fair question to ask. However, on the other side of things, um, Graham Couch, who is a columnist for the uh, Lansing State Journal, I think it's called, one of my old um, Gannett buddies, uh, he was writing about this recently. And since that 2000 National Championship, the Big Ten has had six programs go to 14 Final Fours. And that's more, the six programs is more Final Four programs than any other conference has had in that span. And the 14 Final Fours is tied with the ACC for the most Final Fours of any program in that span. So they're not winning the national championship. And this year was clearly a, a bit of a flame out, even though of the nine teams that got in, I think only three were seeded to get to the second weekend. So it wasn't like a five alarm flame out. It was like a three alarm flame out. So it's how much are you balancing the what they clearly are doing, getting teams to the final four with regularity and getting more of them there than any other conference is. And just that elusive national championship. But what is the why do you which way as being more consequential? I do think like depth of NCAA success matters more than did you happen to win a title. Right. So I do think perhaps we are overstating some of it because we're combining the two right now. We're combining the two-decade lack of a title with a current lack of of depth of NCAA success, right? So we're sort of using the one to build on the other when they're kind of actually two separate things. I do think, Stephen, it's possible, sort of what you talked about, Nathan, in both sports, as much as basketball is more wide open than football, in football, the SEC monster in Alabama. The ACC has in Clemson. The Big Ten has a monster in Ohio State. And the Big 12 had a monster in Oklahoma. Maybe they still will. In basketball, the ACC probably has two monsters, right? In Duke and North Carolina. The SEC has Kentucky. The Big 12 has Kansas. Baylor in recent years has emerged kind of as a new monster in the Big 12. Mm -hmm. Gonzaga has emerged as a West Coast monster that maybe stands in for a Pac-12 team, although UCLA certainly has had some success. And Villanova has emerged as a Big East monster, right? Meanwhile, the Big Ten's monster, Michigan State, is still good. And as we said, they just three tournaments ago, they made the Final Four. But, Stephen, they're, they're waning a little bit. And if you went through all the conferences and said, we're going to rank these conferences, or if you just did, these are the 10 best programs in the country. Michigan State wouldn't be as high as they used to be, and nobody has ascended 
Michigan's close. Five straight Sweet 16s, and they've been to two national title games in the last 12 years, whatever it is. That's pretty good. But I think even part of it is they don't have a Duke or a Villanova or a North Carolina or a Kentucky like stacking titles. And then it, it feels like everything else is not as good when if you dropped one blue blood in here, maybe you'd be like, oh, oh they're pretty deep and they got a guy on top. Michigan's got the best chance to do so just because Jawan Howard made Michigan cool again. Um, they were already winning back when they had um, um, I'm blanking on the names now. John Beeline. John Beeline. Thank you. Yeah, Beeline. I don't know why I was thinking about um, um, Beheim, but John Beeline. They were already winning. Now just they just needed somebody to make them cool so they could go get the five stars. And he did that because I think they had like the number one recruiting class a couple of years back. So yeah, that it it seems like it's coming. It just hasn't clicked yet to the state of like, I mean, they got to the sweet 16 and then they just ran up against Villanova who was just better than them. And if Justin Moore doesn't get hurt, Villanova probably is the favorite to win the national title right now. And they might still be that, but yeah, that's, they need Michigan to start. They've done the recruiting. They need Michigan to start doing on the court, what Duke has done on the court, Kentucky's done on the court, Villanova's done on the court. So they can have that. Cause everybody's in them. There's too many teams in the middle and nobody at the top while let the ACC, the SEC, and even Gonzaga's con- – it's just top-heavy teams. And so I, it's almost in basketball you'd rather be top-heavy than have a deep conference because mm-hmm. being top-heavy wins you national titles. And because you, you didn't mention, Doug, Virginia is one of those, like, programs right. that's, like, out in front of the ACC right now. Virginia got through and won a national championship just a couple years ago. But mm-hmm. how did they have to do that? By absolutely crapping their pants in an epic fashion the year before and losing to a 16 seed, which we wondered if – would lit- we literally wondered if that would ever happen. Like, would a 16 seed ever beat a one? And they went in and beat a team that a year later won the national championship. And even the year that they won it, they had to beat a Big Ten team at the buzzer in a semi-improbable fashion to force overtime and then go on and win it. So it's I, – I, I, I struggle with this because, on the one hand, clearly a 20-year championship drought for a, for a program, for a conference with the resources that the Big Ten has, the tradition the Big Ten has, that doesn't seem – fair i mean i mean it doesn't seem excusable like clearly they should have had a breakthrough at some point but the regularity of getting there i mean somebody could do it next year and then when you start to take what they've done over the past 20 years plus a championship next year it changes the conversation a lot yeah because now you're talking about illinois has gotten there michigan state's gotten there ohio state's gotten there michigan's gotten there multiple times and so you're pairing that with sandwiching national championships at two ends of that so yeah it does it does change the conversation. So the other thing is when you really think about the blue bloods in the history of college basketball, there's really one program that's at fault for this more that gets the biggest burden of what's up with the big 10 and it's Indiana flip flop, Kentucky and Indiana. Cause frankly, what's the difference between Kentucky and Indiana basketball? Is there a difference? Should there be a difference? They are basketball States. They are basketball programs with the history of basketball success. Kentucky is still good. Indiana has fallen off a cliff for 20 years. Kentucky is propping up the SEC. And if, and if, now Alabama's had a thing, and I guess that, you know, I don't even know. Auburn's had some, good now. Yeah. But, but Auburn's no better than Wisconsin. Mm. Right. Right. Alabama's no better than Purdue. But they have Kentucky. Well, Indiana is supposed to be the Big Ten's Kentucky, and they suck. 
They're like the ninth best program in the Big Ten in the last 20 years. It's Indiana's fault because if you say, well, look, historically, well, if we're talking Kansas, Kentucky, North Carolina, Duke, UCLA, the true, true blue bloods, I was going to say, well, the Big Ten, they don't have one of those. They're a football conference, kind of in a football area, and they don't have one of those. And I was like, oh, yeah, no, they do. It's Indiana. And Indiana blew it. The, the difference between Kentucky and Indiana, not to steer this off in a completely other direction, but maybe it is relevant here. I would argue that I'm not a college basketball scholar, but I would argue that Kentucky has Kentucky's repeated national success and its blue bed reputation was built over several coaches and Indiana's was built around one. Didn't they have Indiana had a guy, one guy ahead of night, didn't they? One, I think Finster. they went to one before night, but then but they like, went to they one. Definitely, like, yeah. Yeah. No, but now we have to, now I have to look it up. I don't think it's Brock Finster. It's one of these, someone I know, there's somebody yelling. Is somebody it who's a Villier? Mike Woodson, do you, how important were the Wap Fillier years uh, to the history? Oh, Branch McCracken. Branch, oh, of course, Branch McCracken, yeah. Sorry, sorry I said Brock Finster when it was actually Branch McCracken. Is that a real, is that a real person's name? Branch McCracken? Branch McCracken, and now again, I'm sorry if Branch McCracken is your great-grandfather. No offense, but Branch McCracken, like, they were good for a while in the 50s. His real name is Emmett. Emmett B. McCracken. (laughs) So that was a thing? Like, were there just kids in the 40s running around and running into trees, and it's like, ah, your nickname's Branch. How did that happen? But his initials are Emmett B. McCracken. (laughs) He played the wrong sport. He's supposed to be a football player. I'm sorry. Oh, a linebacker named Emmett B. McCracken? Come on, man. I want, no, Emmett B. McCracken as Mike Linebacker? Come on, man. I want I want Gus Johnson to be able to announce Emmett B. McCracken making a big hit in a game. Um, so anyway, so it's Indiana's, it's Indiana's fault, and that's the end of the discussion. Last thing. Do you want to guess last five NBA drafts, how many lottery picks were from the Big Ten? You guys can last guess. Five? We're five. Of, yeah, we're out of the 17, Russell 18, window. 18, so. 21. Two. two. Did you each say two at the same time? Yes. Yeah. Four. Not in 2017. 2018, Jaron Jackson, Michigan State, number four. Miles mm-hmm. Bridges, Michigan State, number 12. 2019, Romeo Lankford squeezes in at number 14. 2021, Franz Wagner, 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 number eight out of Michigan. I just looked at a mock draft. You know how many Big Ten players are projected in the mock draft I just looked at to go in the lottery this year? One. Four. Really? Yeah. Jaden Ivey. Yeah. Keegan Murray from Iowa. Johnny Davis from Wisconsin. And your friend and mine, Malachi Branham. The mock draft I just looked at, those four guys in the top 14. So the Big Ten, off this gigantic NCAA tournament failure is about to have as many, potentially, could have as many lottery picks this year than they had in the last five years combined. So I think, Stephen, possibly nothing matters. Nothing means anything. And it might just be weird because the other thing, and I said I'll cut it off, the other thing, when the Big Ten was failing on a national level, it felt like their coaches needed to be better. And they started the Big Ten network. Everybody got an infusion of TV manning, and they started hiring better football coaches. I don't know that you would look. Would you look at the Big Ten right now and say, eh, they need better basketball coaches? 
no, I think they're trending in the right direction on those. And I want to also make sure that we're not misunderstood. The idea, this playing through the big men thing, it's important to look to the, the important thing that Steven said was playing through non NBA big men. That's that was definitely a problem at Purdue has been a problem at Purdue for a while. And you look at the, the final four team, the championship game team that Michigan had with Mo Wagner. You look at uh, Wisconsin with Frank Kaminsky. Those guys are not NBA stars, but they can get in the league and hang and stay there. And that's that's the gap we're talking about with the Big Ten right now. They're playing through athletes who cannot play anywhere in the NBA. Yes. Some of the some of the best con- teams in the Big Ten, they're supposed to be contending deep in the NCAA tournament, have, I think, arguably a very flawed approach to roster construction it's yeah one roster construction but then also who they choose to play through because all the people you just named are wings you know what the good thing is it's wide open for ohio state basketball there's not really anybody like standing in the way ohio state basketball. you know what i mean like every other football program in the big ten is like cool we're gonna be awesome now it's like yeah well Good luck having Ohio State football fall apart. That's there. Ohio State basketball absolutely has the opportunity to be the best basketball program in the Big Ten over the next five to ten years. We think Michigan's going to be good. They've made five straight Sweet Sixteens, and that is a huge accomplishment. We think they're going to be good. We think Juwan Howard is good. It's not Duke. It's not Kansas. It's not Villanova. It's not Villanova. You know who you wouldn't want in the Big Ten right now? Villanova. You've got like ten more years of Jay Wright. Good luck. There's not that in the Big Ten. You can handle Greg Gard. You can handle Brad Underwood. You can handle Matt Painter. I wouldn't want to be going against Jay Wright every year. So there's opportunity in this league that I think it certainly the perception is it's been underachieving. I think when you dig in a little bit more, it's, well, they're not quite as underachieving as much as you think, but it's not good enough. Bottom line. One more basketball question from the uh, 419. If Chris Holtman left of his own accord for another opportunity, who would benefit more? Would Chris Holtman find more success in a different school? Or would Ohio State find more success with a different coach? Trying to put Chris Holtman into context, whether he's holding Ohio State back or dragging them further than where they should be. Steven, what a question. What a question. 419, if you ask that question, pat yourself on the back. Like, who would benefit more? We've talked about the, hey, what if he just made a sideways move, right? But I love trying to figure out who would benefit more. What's the right answer, Stephen? Immediately, Chris Holtman. But it might depend on where the move was. Like, if like if he went back to Butler, I mean, yeah, he'd probably benefit because he could do this exact thing that Let's he's doing. Let's say he's not Butler. going back to the school he already was at. Let's say he's That's making fair. a sideways move to, you know, say it's one of those Florida, just like the Florida coach just left to go to Georgia, right? And then Florida hired Todd Golden from San Francisco. Let's say Florida had hired Chris Holtman instead. Who's better off? Probably Holtman. And it's because, like, I think at Florida, he could do what he's doing right here. And and I don't think Florida fans would be complaining that they haven't gotten to the second weekend just because they'd be more focused about the football team not being good right now. Just because it's in the SEC country. So what would Chris Holtman be in a better situation if Ohio State football was bad? 
is he hurt because the football program is so good? And that somehow people, while understanding that the expectations for the basketball program are not nearly, does, does the expectations still, are they raised because, oh, Ryan Day just got here and he made the playoffs the first two years. What's up? Yeah, I think there's an element of it that's, you don't pay attention to it until February. And then whether your expectations are the same, your reactions are the same, where it's like, why aren't we winning? Why'd you lose? It's like, fire old man. Like, this is the first game you've watched all year. You have no idea what's going on with this basketball team. That That's part of more of the, the issue than anything else is you, you, you know, we don't expect Ohio State basketball to be in the final four every year, but if they don't make it, the, every time they lose a game, you apply football logic to it and you just go, why aren't we winning? Blow up the program. Fire Chris Holman. Meanwhile, you've been watching football for the last six months and have absolutely no, no idea what's going on. So, yes. I- uh, yeah, that's uh, uh, that. So now we're yelling at the football fans. No, they get they come off football. And it's like and a 12 and eight Big Ten season and not making the Sweet 16. And now they're complaining. I never listen. I never said it was a problem. I'm just saying it's a reality. Nathan, who would benefit more, Chris Holtman or Ohio State, if he made a lateral move? I think Ohio State would benefit more. I think if you open it up, Ohio State gets to take its pick of the rest of college basketball right now, depending on what kind of hire it wants to make, and can pick. It has its pick of anybody out there except for like you know, ten, fifteen guys. They they can't find someone as good or better than Chris Holtman. Do they though? Do they Why just have they? the pick of the litter? Why don't they? Which Big well, Ten teams wouldn't leave their jobs to come to Ohio State? They'd Tom pay. Izzo, Matt they'd Painter. Pay. They'd pay. Mike Woods paid for it. I mean, they they would if if they're willing to pay. Who couldn't they get? You know, I'm not so sure they couldn't get Painter. If they threw a boatload of money at Painter, I'm not so maybe, sure they couldn't maybe. get Painter. But maybe. so Chris Holbert. So here's the thing. But I also don't know if that's. But look at what Matt Painter has done, both good and bad. Is that yeah they would that be good yeah, yeah it's, right. it's almost the same except a couple more you know regular season accolades but so listen chris holtman's a good basketball coach nobody's that's not the conversation is he a good basketball coach he is he is i don't think the average casual fan has embraced him that's i don't think anybody would disagree with that either Correct. it's just it's not super exciting he hasn't built up any capital They've, they've not been had a great tournament run. They've been average in the Big Ten the last three years. And so, like, I don't think anybody would miss him. And you would have a chance to bring in somebody with a little more juice. Now, it might just be – it might be sizzle, and you'd have to say, is how's the substance? But what if you hired Jeff Bowles from, Kentucky, from Ohio, who was an Ohio State assistant, and just – I think Jeff Bowles brings a little sizzle. What if you hired Scooney Penn? who's a former great player here, right? Who was an administrative assistant and now has moved on. What if you hired, God, now I can't think, what's the St. Peter's guy's name who just has taken the Seton Hall job? He, see, that's the thing. Oh, okay. see, but I, I think, I don't, is that Ohio State benefiting or is that this them being able to win a press conference because these guys are hot names and cool? But what yeah. makes you, but why don't we think that those guys, so they would win a press conference, which is, which is not the point. But why wouldn't we say they wouldn't be as good as Chris Holman? Like, what, what would make us say, oh, well, so Jeff Bowles and Scooty Penn and Shaheen, Holl- Shaheen Holloway, they're no Chris Holman. It's like, what do you mean? Why? Why no, can't they be Chris Holman? 
I'm saying they, they don't like it's not about being Chris Holtman. They have to be better than what Chris Holtman's doing right now. I have no or, doubt in my mind that Bulls are, I mean, Shaheen Hollywood. I have no doubt in my mind that those two could come in here and just do what Chris Holtman is doing. But then does that mean two years from now, people are who won press conferences and now people are now sick of them because they're not doing anything different than what Chris Holtman was doing? But if you're going to be Chris Holtman, you've got to be more exciting. If you're going to be pretty good, it's got to be a more exciting version of pretty good. I mean, I'm just being, I'm being serious. Like, I just don't know that people love Chris Holtman. And I'm not saying that's Chris, that's a bad, I don't, I'm not asking Chris Holtman to be something that he's not. I think Chris Holtman is a good coach and a nice guy. And I'm not sure any casual Ohio State basketball fan cares. So you can go 12 and eight, but if you're shiny when you do it, it's okay. A hundred percent. I also would rather have you go 15 and five, but if you're going to go 12 and eight, make it fun. Is that wrong? We got we can't act like sizzle doesn't matter at all. I mean, there's a football analogy here too. If you're going to be a team that, that wins by four points a game, you've got to win 31 to 27. You can't win 17 to 13. Like there's there, I think it there's a palpable difference. And if you're to gonna to the be the same location. But what I I I get what you guys yeah. are saying. I'm I'm more with the results. I'm just on the side of I don't care what it looks like. Just give me the results. You don't care if it's fun to go to a game. You don't care if it's if it's exciting. If people are juiced up, like like it's well, only the results. A, of course, the results matter the most. But he's if got you a get, hand tied behind his back there too. What's that? The shot. The awful arena and a yeah, fan base shot seems it. pretty apathetic. No matter how good the team is. Yeah. No, that's not true. They're not apathetic no matter how good they get. They get excited when they're good. For... When they're good, they get excited. Yeah, they, they do, but it's still like that arena is not. They built an NBA arena for a team who's like second tier. It's not even like the most important well, program man. on his campus. All right. Now, now we're acting like now. See, it's one of those things. I don't think it's fair to like hold Chris Holtman to the Thad Modest standard, but let's let's not start throwing around second tier and like whatever. It, no, I just mean like again. I'm not. They no, what I mean what like second tier. I mean like again. I'm not I'm not talking about like that. I'm talking about like second tier as far as like they're the second most important program on this campus. And it's like a wide gap in between one and two as far as like public interest. But you have an NBA arena that would suggest otherwise. Okay, I don't want to have an arena conversation now. Now I'm now I'm now I'm now it's not good enough. Everybody who was like, oh, Doug, you let him off the hook. Now you guys have convinced me it's not good enough. Make it fun. Do something. And if you don't do something. Make it fun to be a fan of this basketball program. Is that too much to ask? It's sports. So if you're not going to be Ohio State, do I want Paul Chris or do I want P.J. Fleck? I want P.J. Fleck. Row a freaking boat. Don't come out and bore me to death in a news conference if you're not going to go. If you're going to go 12 and 0, I don't care what the news conference is. If you're going to be 9 and 3, can we have some fun while we're doing it? Give me P.J. Fleck. I'd love I now I'd prefer Nick Saban, but I get it. Maybe you're not gonna get Nick Saban. Can we have some fun? Can we have some juice? Can we make people care about Ohio State basketball? It's not too much to ask, man. It is not too much to ask. It's not good enough. It's not, and it it's not that far removed when people gave a whole heck of a lot of, of cares about Ohio State basketball. It's not ancient history. 
it's palpable history that they are not close to right now. That's right. And it's not I mean, just you, the arena. You, I get it. Your, your whole point is if you're going to be average, let's have fun being average. But I'd rather yes. you just win. I'd rather you. And I, I'm not saying you're wrong to have that point. I'm just saying I'd rather you just go out there and win basketball games and have some production. Of course. Like everybody agrees with that. But if we're going to be average, let's have to do it the right way. Yeah, let's have right. a carnival. Have a little carnival in the concourse. Maybe a dunk tank, a hot pretzel, right? I guess they have hot pretzels. They don't have a dunk tank. You can have Sergeant Slaughter come by. They had red pandas. And he's done at Rutgers. You know what? Can we get? Can we just all give up on the freaking college basketball halftime shows? What a freaking boondoggle. You can catch a plate on your head for real? Can we just let eight-year-olds get on the court and play against each other for 15 minutes? Yeah. Whenever they actually do that, everybody likes that more. I don't care if you can catch a plate on your head. Well, none of us care because we're working at halftime if we're at a college but, basketball but game. Yeah, but, no, I don't. Nobody cares. Everybody leaves to go to the bathroom and get. But snacks. everybody, fans like frisbee dogs, man. That fans like frisbee dogs. They can like I, Red Panda. They like Quick Change when he was still can, around. Can I complain about something that people make their kids do that I think they need no. to stop because it's just a a a a opening the door for them to be bullied in school. No, so no no. no. Complaints on Buckeye Talk. That's true. No you complaint. must be new here. Okay, cool. Cool, 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 cool. I'll get into it. So, like, there's this um, thing. It's like these dribbling kids. And all they do is dribble the basketball. And it's like a showcase. that They just dribble the basketball. They do all these weird moves. And one, it's a lot of traveling and double dribbling. And it's supposed to be, like, entertaining. But honestly, I'm thinking as an 11-year-old, if I go to a basketball game and I see another kid from my class doing that, I'm going to laugh at that kid. Because it's just, just put them in real basketball. Like, why are we putting, why, why is basketball turned into a dance recital? Just go let them play basketball. Yeah, no, I've seen the dribbling kids. I mean, you know, whatever child floats abuse. your boat. But, but I would abuse. rather, again, we might have people listening whose kids are in the dribbling league. So, like, I'm sorry. Thanks, for, thanks for dumping you know, <laughs> those 10 listeners off the podcast. People have different interests. People are allowed to have different interests. So whatever floats your boat, you put five-year-olds on a basketball court and let some three-foot-tall kid try to make a basket on a 10-foot net, the whole arena is cheering, and it's free, and those kids have a great experience. You don't need to pay somebody to come in and be a halftime act. We'll be back I will agree with that. All right, wrapping up with nonsense. That was kind of a lot of nonsense. There was a lot of screaming about that. I got... Sometimes I think something and then I think, oh, let's have a rational discussion. And by the end of it, I'm like, nope, this was screaming time. Who knew? Look, I talk. Who knew? <laughs> We're going to skip a question because we went a little long on basketball. We're moving to the nonsense. 804. I assume that the three of you work out of your homes, i.e. Doug's basement. As Cleveland.com play doesn't have a Columbus office. Do any of you miss working at an office like you probably did at a newspaper? Do the three of you get together other than at the Woody or at games? Please enlighten That's Steve from the 804. So we used to have a, a Cleveland.com Columbus office that was right downtown by the state house that went away before the pandemic. I think it was gone. Well, no, maybe not. Cause I can remember we did a podcast around a microphone there that was like right before the pandemic. Yes. When we yes. talked about the pandemic, the yes. looming pandemic. Yes. And yes. I was like, the world is going to shut down. And then two days later, the world shut down. 
And we did three of us around the microphone, Nathan, which as we look back on that now, feels like cavemen gathered around the fire. It's like, well, I guess we all have to be in the same place to do a podcast because how could we possibly do it otherwise? We no longer have that office. More to the point, it feels like cavemen gathered around a stack of grenades or something like that. Why, why were we sitting like nose to nose around this microphone as a, na- a pandemic was beginning to sweep across the nation? That should have been that could have been like ground zero for the end of Buckeye talk. I did work at a newspaper where you went into the office all the time. My first job, I was in the office every day and then you'd go cover a game, but you'd come back to the office. You come back to the office to write. And then I had desk shifts where I was editing and we were we would gather around and everybody would look at the headlines and double check the proofs of the page to try to catch errors before we sent it out. Uh, my second job I did that some degree. And then we're in a little bit of a different situation here in that we don't live or work in the city in which our company is based. So we're really removed. You know, if we worked for the Columbus Dispatch, we'd just be more connected to a home office. We have an office in Cleveland that people, you know, lots of people still go into. Um, certainly the whole world has gone a little more remote. Stephen, have you ever, I mean, I'm assuming you had it at the school paper at Kent State, sort mm-hmm. of that gather around, everybody work, but you haven't really had that experience since then, I guess, right? Yeah, no, I lived in Franklin Hall when I was at Kent State, literally. It's kind of sad. Um, never had an official job where I've worked in an office. I've had internships, obviously, because when I was in college, you go to the newsroom and you work in that stuff. But no, I've actually never had an official job where I didn't work from home. And um, my roommate now, he now works a job that works from home. He's like, dude, I don't know how you do this every day. This is this is depressing. And it's like, yeah, well, you get to be in your pajamas most of the day. So. Yeah, my first job was much like yours, Doug, like um, my working for my hometown paper, but it was because this was pre-internet. You're talking about, you know, the mid to late 90s still, and people didn't have, you could have like dial-up, I guess, internet at home, but it's such a different experience to the world we live in now. And back then, if you wanted to file something remotely, you weren't just sending someone an email. You were like coding up a document and then sending it through a telephone line and it would show up in the system, but it was so much more convoluted. And once I got to a job where, uh, when I was working in Indiana, where high-speed internet was just so much more available and I could do that from home, I I started working from home a lot more and I preferred it there. So it's been, we're coming up on well over a decade that I've been working mostly from home. I would with people under circumstances in Lafayette who preferred working in the office and like even when they shut down that office they like had them like mock up a little office for him at the printing plant in town so that he could still go there and like work out of the office because he just prefers that environment so much more whereas I definitely preferred an environment where I would just like get up and sit on my couch and start working and then when I was done working the day was over and I never had to go anywhere as anyone who works from home knows when you work from home you can always be working, which sometimes isn't great. Sometimes like, hey, I went in, I did my job for eight hours or 10 hours or whatever it was, and then I came home and then I could not work anymore. It's like, oh no, you could always be working. So sometimes I miss the office. I never felt like more of a team than I, for the first two and a half years of paper I worked at, where I was not a good editor and we all had to take shifts, you know, being an editor. 
once or twice a week. I remember one night, our guy, like our Chicago writer was covering a game and like a Monday night game. And I was the editor that night and he sent the game story in like six minutes before deadline. And it was too long. And I just had to cut it. And I cut it in a way that like, it didn't make sense anymore. And like the next day he was like, I'm going to kill you. And I was like, I know I'm terrible at this. I really am sorry for what I did to your story, but it was 200 words over and I had 90 seconds to edit it. I'm sorry. I'm sorry that your game story ended like in the middle of a word. Like it was awful but we would gather around they'd print out all the here's like the mock-up you know here's the six page of the sports section and we'd all gather like hunch over and look over someone's shoulder hey change this hey we're missing a comma there hey there's a misspelled word in the ninth paragraph like i loved that i felt like i was on a team and then like since i've been here i've been here for 15 years and i did this by myself for eight years i was just down here in columbus like a knucklehead with nobody which is great and it's freedom but Sometimes it's like, oh, what's it like? Oh, you have like a somebody had cake at the office. What would that be like? Like, I don't know. I haven't been in an office in 15 years. So I do miss it a little bit. But the freedom yeah. is also is also pretty stinking good. I don't know if I there can was work a, in an office since I've never done it. To... You know, because I'm I've literally never done it. I'm not even sure if I could do it at this point. I'm so used to this style of doing things. Yeah. There was an energy to it. Because like, I mean I mean, used to like the the stories you'd have to send them back and they get like cut out and pasted together on the on mm-hmm. the page by the composing people and they would take a sh- like a big photo of it basically and then that's how pages would get printed out and like the just the energy on like a Friday night like covering high school football of like getting everything together and like just the buzz that was in a place like that on deadline I you can't really replicate that now like that doesn't exist because deadlines aren't the same it's like we're just it's a 24-hour deadline there's how many seconds there are in a day that's how many deadlines we have it was like having a class project that was due and every finishing the project at once every day and on a friday night and again back when newspaper staffs were four times as big as they are now you'd go out and you'd cover your high school football game on a friday night and then everybody would be driving back to the office somebody's game was 11 minutes from the office some got somebody's game was 28 minutes from the office I can remember my first sports editor, my first internship telling me this. I thought it was like a lightning strike. I was like, wow. He said, when you're driving home, don't turn on the radio. Think. Think when you're driving home. Write your story in your head. So when you get in the office, you're not sitting down at your computer and be like, oh, okay, I guess what's my lead? It's like, no, I've written 200 words in the car while I was thinking. I was like, don't turn on the radio. That's the greatest journalism advice I ever heard in my life. And every and then it would be like it's like the amazing race. You're trying to get back to get to that guy. Who's the guy? Jeff Nielsen. I don't know what the guy's Keith at the stand and he has the cards on the amazing race. I kind of watch it sometimes. Keith yeah. is there. He's got your card. What where did you finish? You get back. You see the computer, you're pounding out your story. Somebody else comes in six minutes later, you're pounding out your story because your your newspaper has covered nine different high school games in the area. There was there was like a great energy to that that will never be replicated again and again thank you for indulging us on middle-aged white guy radio could we be older like steven does that sound great to you no. you're racing i know i know you covered high school games for us mm-hmm. before you got the full-time job with cleveland.com but you weren't like racing back to the office were you were you just like you were just like on your laptop writing in a mcdonald's or in your car right yeah no i would i mean if the school had Wi-Fi, I would just write there until they kicked me out. And if not, 
typically what I would do on Friday nights is I'd find where the school is and then I'd find the closest McDonald's. So I already knew that information in my head. So I knew exactly where I needed to go. And then I'd probably leave like four hours before the game to go scout the McDonald's just so I could see what the fastest route is to get the McDonald's. But no, I was never racing to get anywhere because you get it in before yeah. by 10 or 11 o'clock and then it goes up and you go home. You guys have right, a very question. stressful life. That's why all sports, that's why all sports writers from your guys' area are going bald and have receding hairlines. Oh, yeah. No. Well, yeah. I got a lot of problems in life. I don't think I'm going bald anytime soon. No, you got a lot of hair. Fuck okay. I talk. Uh, from the 513, are worms the only thing you, refu- you refuse to put on a hook? Is that the only reason you don't go fishing? There are copious amounts of artificial baits and lures. Doug, are you happy you had girls so you would never be forced to go out of your comfort zone with things like fishing and the outdoors? So first of all, girls can go fishing. Absolutely. I, th- I think my children, regardless of gender, would not want to go fishing because here's the thing. Beyond the worm, have to touch the fish once you get the fish. I'm okay. I've done it with other things before, other lures that aren't alive. And you throw it in, but once the fish bites the hook and you are now pulling it in, now I have to touch a much bigger living thing than a worm. So that really is this thing. But yes, I have gone to like a hunting cabin with my friends. I have never hunted. I would be terrible at hunting. One of my best friends growing up was a huge hunter and loved to go and would sit in a tree stand. And so we went to his cabin a couple of times and hung out one time. We were at the cabin. There's no running water. And I was in the stream next to the cabin, like kind of taking like a sponge bath in the stream. And right on the bank next to me, a deer stood up like 10 feet from me. And I screamed like I was being attacked by a grizzly bear. And then I was later telling this story. And someone was like, oh, like you were just that startled by the deer. And I said, no, at some point I realized I was no longer startled by the deer. I was now just afraid of the deer. And I was, I was fearful of what the deer might do to me. It's like, I'm no longer, it's no longer, huh? Now it's, oh no, what if this deer kicks me in the face? So I'm not an outdoors guy. I don't, I don't, I don't know what to say. I think it's generational. My dad was not an outdoors guy, right? I mean, this kind of stuff is passed down. You're kind of an outdoors family or you're not. So whatever kind of kids I had, they were going to be indoor cats, man. I don't know what to tell you. Nathan, right? I mean, is it, is your family like a hunting and fishing family? Is that why you are not afraid of a fish? Not that much. I, man, I did it very, very, very limited amount of it when I was younger. This has been more just something we've done um, later in life, like just as adults, just once, one when we'd go down to Florida, we'd take one day and go fishing. And my, my wife likes doing it. My sister-in-law likes doing it. So it's definitely not a gender thing. Um, I think it's one of those things, though, you definitely have to be introduced to it. Like, I, I'm not a golfer because I was never introduced to golf when I was a kid, and I've never, like, taken it up on my own. You know what I mean? Like, I didn't have a dad who golfed. So it's almost like you have to be, like, introduced to it in a um, a very a, in a formal way to find out whether you like it or not. So your kids, if you were never going to take them fishing – probably weren't going to get into fishing any hunting or fishing in your family at all steven no and it's not because i'm like scared of the fish or the hook i just i just don't want to go fishing i have a lot of patience i don't have that level of patience to one 
hook it, throw it in the water, and then you just got to sit there hoping something bites. And maybe you hold on, maybe you don't. But no, I just, I'd rather do indoor activities. You think you're not afraid of the fish because you've never confronted the fish. So you can act all high and mighty and be like, uh, Doug's afraid of a fish. I'm not. Let's see until you have to look a fish in the eye I mean, and see how you do. I mean, I guess we'll never find out because I'm not <laughs> But is it fear? Like you have all the power in that situation. The fish is literally out of water. Is it fear no, or is it just not knowing what you're supposed to do with it? No, I don't want to touch it. It's, it's gushy. It's ooky. That's all. My father-in-law, who had two daughters, doesn't have a son, loves to fly fish. It's his number one thing he loves to do. And I don't know. My, my wife went fishing with him sometimes when she was a kid. I don't know if he was like, oh, wait until my daughter, oh, my son-in-law and I. We're going to go fly fishing twice a year. We'll get, we'll fly to Montana. And then I was like, Hey, nice to meet you. I'm going to marry your daughter. And by the way, I will not touch a fish. And he was like, well, thanks a lot. Nice choice, honey. Well done. Question from the five, eight, six Todd in Michigan. What's more annoying a receivers throwing invisible flags when they think they're interfered with B Defensive back signaling incomplete after a successful pass defense. C, receiver signaling first down. D, all of the above. Steven, rank your annoyance. Is there one that is by far the most annoying? Um, probably the receiver first down because most of the time, you're already catching the ball past the first down marker. So it's not like you did. It's not like you got the ball. Like it's not like you're a running back who got the ball behind the line of scrimmage and you just had to force your way to the first down line because you broke a couple of tackles. I think defensive backs should be able to do whatever they want because they're in the most disadvantaged situation of anybody on the football field. So if they force an incomplete pass, they should be able to celebrate and talk as much trash as they want. I am loath to criticize football players for celebrating anything because they're throwing their bodies and brains around for 60 minutes for our entertainment and the energy and emotion that it takes to sustain that. I get that you want to, excuse me, let that out. So I get it. The, The DBs, when they signal like incomplete, when you had coverage that was six yards off and it like hit the guy in the chest and he dropped it and you had nothing to do with the incompletion. Eh, That's a little, you know, I'm not sure what your exertion level was there. Exactly. The other guy just screwed it up. So um, that the first down thing, I don't even know when that started, but it's so ubiquitous. Now we should count, right? Watch an NFL game or a college game. How many times does a guy signal first down? That, that, you know, sometimes a little bit goes a long way. But again, they're putting their, they're putting it out there. They're the man in the arena. So I guess they can do whatever annoying thing um, they want because I know it, it is a highly charged atmosphere and sometimes you want to celebrate. Nathan, what annoys you? Actually, well, specific. I want to make sure I'm specific. That's a very dangerous On this question. list. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, well, that, that doesn't annoy me that much. I mean, you actually achieved a first down. You get up and celebrate a first down. Uh that because there's so many other instances, you know, and even the defensive back signaling a pass breakup or incomplete when he makes a pass breakup again, that's not really taunting. You're just sort of celebrating what happened. What gets me more 
is guys who will celebrate a pass breakup or an incomplete when they weren't really what caused it. Like maybe the guy just dropped the ball. Maybe it was a poor throw, but they're trying to take the celebration or, uh, or, you know, um, guys who have elaborate touchdown celebrations when they just scored to make it 35 to seven. And they're on the seven end of that. Like that, that annoys me. They're like not having like the context of, of the game context. Like you should be a little bit more humble, I think in that moment and realize that your touchdown doesn't really mean anything of the ones that were listed here. I would guess I would say the receivers throwing invisible flags when they think they're interfered with. Cause I kind of like what Steven's saying. I don't know if I go to the extreme that Steven does, but we've gotten into a brand of football where it seems like, you can't lay a finger on anyone in any circumstances without it being a potentially huge shift in the field or momentum or whatever. And I don't like guys trying to um, amplify that. Also, you mean like receivers flopping? Uh, no, this isn't even necessarily saying it was a flop. Like sometimes, look, you know, rubbing's racing. Sometimes you're like neck and neck, you're you're hip to hip with a guy. You're both going for a ball. Your feet might get tangled up. You might brush against each other. The pass is incomplete. Doesn't mean there was interference. So don't call Chris, for it. I told Chris this at Pro Day. He's like really good at like selling it and, and getting those calls, especially as deep, guys who are deep ball threats are usually really good at selling it when they know they're not going to get to the ball. Here's why I'll always respect the defensive back doing the incomplete, even if he had nothing to do with it. It's about the long game, man. You got to talk trash the entire game, and your goal is to get into that receiver's head. And whatever you can do to get into that receiver's head, you do it. Because it might pay off down the line when it's third and goal and they need to score, and now you're in that receiver's head, and then you get the big-time you know, pass breakup. Because, like I said, you don't know the route they're running. You just are in man coverage. You're in press coverage and you're in disadvantage. You don't know if the ball is going to be in a position where you can actually try to make a pass breakup because the quarterback's really good, even though you played good coverage or anything else. So I'll always be for defensive backs should be able to do whatever they want, whether they were involved with the play or not. I will say in general, it is much more egregious in high level sports when referees and other players are on the lookout too much for yeah. celebrations that they don't deem appropriate, whether that means sticking a fastball, 96 mile per hour fastball in a guy's ear because he bat flipped it off, off they're hitting a home run off of you, whether it means a ref so on the lookout for a technical foul that a guy dunks and hangs on the rim for half a second and they're teeing it up, whether it means the officials are so worried about taunting that if you make a play and look in the general direction of the guy that you made the play on that you get a taunting flag, there are a lot of crotchety old ding-dongs who are attempting to be the arbiters of good taste in sports that can collectively cram it. Emotion yes. is part of the game. The problem right now in sports is not too much emotion. It's the emotion police who are changing what happens on the field and on the court because it's like, ah, I think you were too happy there. Oh, I think your trash talk was directed at somebody for 0.7 seconds. Get out of here, man. Get out of here. These athletes are like, you are surging with emotion. Every second, let them celebrate. God, crotchety old ding-dongs, right? And who would have thought? Me, Steven, me, as a crotchety old ding-dong, criticizing them. Ridiculous. That's how you get changed, man. You get changed by the crotchety old ding dongs calling out the crotchety old ding dongs. 
I feel that for sure. What was the thing? What was just the thing? Wasn't there a high school state yes. championship game or yeah. something that was turned on a ridiculous tech mm-hmm. on a on a dunk? The kid is yeah. I can't remember his name right now, but he's actually like on Ohio State's basketball radar. But he hung on the rim. He didn't really even hung, hang on the rim. He dunked on a fast break. And you know when you dunk on a fast break, well, I don't know. When you dunk on a fast break, <laughs> you do no, not know, know about dunking okay. on a fast break. <laughs> when you dunk on a fast break with two hands, you're gonna swing because your momentum is taking you that way. So in order to people hang on the rim for two reasons, typically it's because you're swinging. And if you take your hands off the rim, you're going to fall on your back and you'd rather not do that. Or there are people under you and you'd rather not land on them. So he swings, he swings back, he gets off and that's end of it. But because he hung on the rim for 0.7 seconds, it's taunting. No, he's just trying to make sure he lands safely because you're 10 feet in the air. Evan Turner broke his back. Cause he slipped <laughs> off the rim on a fast break dunk and landed on his back. So, I mean, those people that's, uh, I mean, if you can't understand the emotion that exists, you know, right on the surface of all these games, when people are playing at the highest level, whether it's high school or college or the pros, it's like, then you shouldn't be on the field. And that, you know, there's, there's still too much that I, I, I hope we're getting a little better about it, but there's still too much of the uh, emotion police out there. All right. Of course we went longer than expected. It was a rapid fire that wasn't so rapid. We appreciate you guys being part of it. Nathan has a point. I meant to do this. I, I, I should have done it at the end of the basketball thing. But 300 people plus in the bracket heading into the final four. Nathan Baird, bracket police. You have an update. Uh, bracket police would be a better job than bracket filler outer uh, by how I did this year. Uh, right now, the leader going into the final four is Joe's Swell Bracket. 84 points. He has three of the four final four teams picked correctly. He has Duke and North Carolina playing in one semifinal. He has Kansas playing in the semifinal. He got uh, Tennessee was his pick over Villanova and had Tennessee picked to go to the championship game. So he has Duke. His national championship is still alive. However, I think the front runner might actually be Christopher's bat bracket, which also has three of the four final four teams. They're four points behind Joe. But he has Duke winning the national championship and he has Villanova playing Kansas and Kansas winning that game on the other side. So he can still get his championship game pairing and then still get the national champion on top of that. Those seem to be the two top contenders. Uh, Everybody else is, uh, you know, either three or more points behind even the second place guy. So uh, those are your best chances. The the third place guy right now, Michael, um, if Villanova were to win the national championship, that might give him enough points. He has Villanova and Duke in his final four, but doesn't have Duke making the championship game. One thing that I've been thinking about that might make for a decent podcast next week is I'm curious to see how this Duke North Carolina game goes because it's a stand in for what an Ohio state, Michigan college football playoff game would be like. And, and I know there's been a lot of talk about it. They've never met. They've never met in the tournament. Is that right? And now they're meeting in the final four. They've never played in the tournament at all, which is kind of crazy. The idea, oh, they've never played in the Final Four. I was a little surprised I never been in the tournament. So um, we've talked a lot over the years about what an Ohio State-Michigan Big Ten title game would be like if they were in opposite divisions. And we talked about last year, right? If Ohio State doesn't lose to Oregon, Ohio State probably would have gotten in ahead of Cincinnati. And then all it would have taken was Ohio State-Michigan winning their two playoff games for the national title game to be Ohio State-Michigan. So I think this is a reasonable facsimile, Nathan, and I think it might be worth talking about next week to see how people react to North Carolina and Duke in this situation. For now, the Thursday pod, 
Buckeye Retalkables, 10 years ago, Ohio State versus Kansas in the Final Four. That'll be your Thursday podcast. Friday, we'll be talking about what we learned from the offensive line and tight ends at Thursday interviews. Thanks to you guys for making this part of your week. Make sure you're reading cleveland.com slash OSU. Try the text at 614-350-3315. For Stephen Means and Nathan Baird, I'm Doug Lamarice, and that was Buckeye Talk.